I want to just open us up in prayer, and, uh, and then we'll get started. So, Father, I thank you. Thank you for your presence in this place, God. Thank you for your heart that is for us. Thank you for your love that washes, crashes over us wave after wave. Thank you that us just being here today and just sitting in your presence, just making this time for you is so moving your heart, God. Encounter our hearts today with how much you love us, with how much you delight in us, Father. We give you this time this morning, Lord. Anoint my words, Lord. Give me grace to, to speak not on my own accord, but in partnership with the Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. We bless your holy name. Amen. I'm really excited uh, to share this, just what's on my heart with you guys. It's really been, it's been stirring for months. Um, probably the first little blip on the radar was back in like September. Um, thanks to something that the Lord put on my roommate, Grace's heart. Grace is our um, children's director here. Um, and leads our prophetic ministry, and uh, and it's kind of just culminated its increase in the last couple of months. Um, but I'm going to talk about preparing ourselves for Jesus' return, um, specifically in the context of cultivating a lovesick heart. Because um, here's the thing, you know, Mike Bickle, who's a leader at um, International House of Prayer, he says this phrase all the time, and I love it. He says, lovers will outwork workers any day. It doesn't matter what the dollar amount is on your paycheck. Whatever you love, you're going to pour yourself into no matter what. And so I'm going to, I'm going to get kind of practical with some stuff today. And it might be a little intense. It might feel a little bit like rebuke. But it's from the Bible, so you can't get mad at me. You have to get mad at God if you're going to get mad. And I don't recommend that. Um, but at the same time, he wants you to be real. He wants worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. So if you got to get mad at him and open up to him about it a little bit and then ask him to come and change your heart to make it more like his, that's okay. Don't shy away from that. So in Revelation 19, verse 7, it's talking, it's this prophetic picture of the bride of Christ being presented to Jesus. The bride is the church being presented to Jesus for the great wedding, the greatest wedding of all of eternity. And it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You know, we have a kind of a cultural piece in the church today where we ask the Lord to do a lot of things for us. We ask him to come and, you know, help us with this and take away this bad you know, sin pattern that I'm struggling with and take away my desire for those unrighteous things and take away my anger for my boss and take away this and do all this stuff. But really, that's not scriptural. Um, what's scriptural is that you make yourself ready. What's scriptural is that you actually lay hold of the grace which he's freely given for us to walk in all of those very things. It's actually the life of a believer is meant to be one of 
choosing godliness, of choosing holiness, of choosing righteousness, of choosing love. It's not always easy. It's not always a thing that we want, but that's what it means to die to our flesh and live according to the Spirit. And so, like I said, some of this might feel a little harsh. It might feel a little intense. It might feel a little bit like a rebuke, but I really, my desire today is to call you forth into your destiny. I want you to be excited for the wedding. I want you to be excited for Jesus' return. But in the church, a lot of times we get scared about all the bad stuff that we hear is gonna happen in the future. And so we just ignore studying the end times. We ignore studying anything about Jesus' return. We ignore studying anything about tribulation and all we don't understand the rapture and it's just confusing it over our heads. So we're just like, you know, it's okay if I just love Jesus, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, you know, give my tithes and offerings, I'm good to go and it'll all work out in the end. Maybe. You might get lucky and actually meet Jesus face to face before all that stuff goes down. But I believe that there's going to be some intense stuff that goes down because Jesus himself said it. Um, and, and it's our job to be made ready. And not only is it our job, but it's actually our, our highest joy and greatest honor because it's actually stepping into the fullness of our destiny. This verse actually paints a picture of what we were created for. We were created for a marriage. We were created for a close, intimate relationship with our bridegroom, Jesus. And our destiny is to live our lives in a manner worthy of this very day, of this very moment, where the bride has made herself ready. I didn't have this on the slides, but the next verse after this, it says, for the bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Our wedding dress is actually our righteousness in this age. It's our choices for Jesus in this age that is actually like a, every time you do something in the light of, in, in, in the eyes of Jesus, where you make that choice where anger bursting inside of you and you're like, Jesus, I'm not gonna scream and cuss that person out for cutting me off, even though I almost just died. I bless them in Jesus' name. Well, that's everyday people, especially around here. My gosh. I thought New Jersey drivers were bad. I grew up in New Jersey, and then I moved to Texas. <clears throat> it's scary. Um, <laughs> but it's every choice that we make in those moments where we feel our flesh rising up inside of us, we feel this like, Ugh, this icky stuff that we should feel icky about. It's good. It's good to like see the ugly stuff and go, oh, that's kind of ugly. Because if we don't see it as ugly, then what are we going to do about it? Nothing. It's actually, it's the Holy Spirit. His job, Jesus said in Matthew 16, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So when we feel convicted about the icky stuff that we see, it's actually Holy Spirit doing his job and it's you listening. Well, it's you being attentive to his voice. If you question if you're hearing the voice of God, if you can't hear the voice of God, if you ever feel conviction, you're, you're hearing his voice. So that's, that's not a question anymore because that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. It's him doing this job. And our job is to then hear him speaking and respond with obedience. Jesus said that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. He wasn't going, if you love me, you'll listen to me. You need to prove your love to me. You're so disobedient, you don't even love. That's not what he was saying. He was saying... Again, lovers outwork workers. He said, when true love for me is cultivated in your hearts, it's not gonna be hard for you to obey. 
You're going to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're going to hear me calling you and you're going to leap and run after the yes. Because your heart and the love in your heart for me is motivating that. And that's the greatest driving force of anything in the world. Anything. So what are some of these practical things that we can do? I want to just dive into some scriptures. I love, I love Peter. Oh, he was such a real man. He, like, he was like so in love with Jesus, and he screwed up all the time. But he was, he was like, he kept running back to Jesus. And I love that we get his life as a testimony. Like it's so, if you look at the life of Peter, it's like, praise God. I am not a total failure. You loved him. He was in your inner circle, Jesus. Like, praise God. And because I would venture to say, because of some of those failures, because of his vulnerability and admitting, ah, and messing up and running back to Jesus, he actually encountered stuff in the heart of Jesus that not many of us have encountered because we actually shy away in shame and in fear when we're uncertain of how Jesus might receive us. But I mean, this guy straight up three times, Jesus goes, hey, you're gonna deny me. And he goes, never, I would never do that. Like they would kill me before I deny you. He's like, okay, it's okay. You're gonna, you're gonna deny me. And he's like, what in the world? I don't know who this guy is. I thought he knew everything, but clearly not. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Peter denies him three times. And I love his response. I forget which gospel it's in, but one of them, it says that he, the third time, the moment that he, he, he denied Jesus the third time, the rooster or the cock crows, there's different um, interpretations of what that means. And immediately he's reminded of Jesus saying, hey, you're going to deny me three times. And he wept bitterly. It says he wept bitterly. He was able to come in tune with that, with the reality of his heart. But then he runs after Jesus. He runs right back to him later on in the story. And so there's something that he encountered in the heart of Jesus. And I love that because it gives him this confidence and this boldness to say stuff like we're about to read. It's really intense, but it's coming from a man who was like, I did all the wrong stuff and I know that he still loves me. And he still kept giving me grace to keep saying yes and coming back and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Right there, he's quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that himself. It's in red letters. If you have a Bible with red letters, that's not like a super common thing nowadays. You know, I remember being a, a teenager and reading that, that verse for the first time, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I was like, some, some translations say, be holy as I am holy. And, and I remember reading it and being like, oh my gosh, God, you must hate me. Like, I'm never going to, I'm, I'm a failure. Like, why even try? I could never do this. Be holy as you're holy. Like, you're God. Yes, you are fully human, but you're God, the perfect sinless man. You're calling me to sinlessness? That's impossible. Like, I, it just felt like nothing but condemnation. Like, why? But I love the, the context that Peter gives here. Because he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you. 
Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before you knew stuff was sin, you did it because you didn't know it was sin. You were ignorant. Holy Spirit comes, begins convicting you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and you're aware of it now. How are you going to respond? Are you going to be like Jesus and ignore? Well, Jesus didn't have to ignore the passions because he was perfect the whole time. But for us, before we were born again, our choice is do we ignore the former way that we did things? Do we recognize that is an ungodly passion that was cultivated in ignorance, but now that I'm no longer ignorant, I'm responsible for what I know. I'm gonna to choose to be holy just like Jesus chose. He always chose holiness. That's why he was a perfect sinless man because he chose it every single time. Though he was fully man. Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way that we are. So you can't pull the, well, he was God. He doesn't understand God. No, he went through it all. He knows. He knows fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. That word grace is the word uh, charis. That's the English way of pronouncing it. And it means of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to, to the exercise of the Christian virtues. We don't have any excuses. <laughs> Peter goes, okay, you can be holy as God is holy because he's given you grace. He's bestowing upon you grace because of the kindness of God. He exerted his holy influence upon your soul and saved it, turned it to Christ, and now he strengthens you he increases you in faith. He increases you in knowledge, in affection, and he kindles our hearts to exercise all those things that he just strengthened us in. It's not by our own strength that we're holy as Jesus is holy. It's by laying hold of the grace which he's bestowed upon us to do it. I love how Paul says often, especially in, in First and Second Corinthians, he talks about like, I, I don't boast in myself. I can't. I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And sometimes God sets things up intentionally, using the weak and the foolish things that don't make sense, calling the ugliest, nastiest sinner and completely turning their lives around because it shows that when we lean into his grace, no matter how much nothingness we have inside of us, no matter how ugly and unholy and messed up we once were, that when we lean into that grace, we actually have the capacity to be holy as Jesus was holy. From this moment on, Jesus wouldn't call us to it if he wasn't gonna give us the grace to do it. So our job is to prepare our minds for actions and be sober-minded. This passage is a very eschatological, that's a big fancy word, it just means the study of the end times. The context of this passage, First uh, Peter, is Jesus is coming back. So prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. To be sober-minded, I love this, it says um, the Greek, the definition of the Greek there is to be temperate, dispassionate, circumspect. I looked up the word dispassionate 
Um, well, I looked up all these, but I, I was really stirred by dispassionate. Um, and I just looked it up on my MacBook's built-in dictionary. I'm not sure which dictionary they use, but it says not influenced by strong emotion and so able to be rational and impartial. To be sober-minded means that when we feel all this stuff come up, that we don't allow all the stuff that we feel to dictate our actions. We recognize that the stuff is rising up, but we are not influenced by that strong emotion, and so we are able to be rational and impartial. Our bias towards, but God, I really want to do that. But God, it feels really right to do that right now. It doesn't matter. We're impartial. We go, ah, that doesn't matter. I'm not influenced by that desire anymore because I'm a new creation. I'm not going to be swayed by that strong emotion. I get to now, standing in neutral zone, choose. Do I want to be holy as Jesus is holy? Do I want to, be, do I want to take this serious actually be sober-minded? Do I take seriously the fact that like, my life isn't a joke, that who I am and what I do and how I live my everyday actually matters in light of eternity? Because at the end of the day, even if you have zero impact on anybody on this earth, if you have zero influence, the reality is that how you live today will determine if you're there on that wedding day as the bride who made herself ready. If you actually have a garment to put on directly related to your righteous deeds in this age. This mental picture of like, because like I said in Revelation 19, verse eight, it says it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I like to picture like every choice that we make for holiness or for righteousness, picture it like a needle and thread, right? It's weaving that dress. It's weaving that linen that we get to wear at the wedding. Let's go to 2 Peter 3. It should be on the screens too. Um, I'm going to start in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, context, He's talking about the end of the age when everything in the earth is going to be no more because God's going to come and create a new heaven and a new earth. So he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's intense. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them. He's like, quick plug for Paul right here. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do also to other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and to the end of eternity. Amen. I'm not going to lie, when I was reading through this passage the other day, 
I was like, God, I feel like I could just get up and read that and walk away. <laughs> like, message preached. Thanks, Peter. Um, but I'm gonna, I want to kind of take this out piece by piece a little bit for a few minutes here. I love how Peter's just setting our mind on like, stuff's going to go down. And in light of that, what, what people, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. There's an invitation for us to wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God, which is the day of Jesus' return. The day that leads up to the wedding. I keep pointing at the screen, but it's not there. Sorry, Sloan. I'm not trying to make Sloan look bad, I promise. Um, but I love how Peter makes this correlation of between choosing to live lives of holiness and godliness with hastening and waiting for the coming of the Lord. The way that we posture ourselves as we wait for Jesus' return is actually by living lives of holiness and godliness. And we don't just wait, we actually hasten it. Do you know what that means? Yeah, quicken it. We, we long for it so much that it's like we're pulling heaven to earth. In Luke 18, Jesus shares this parable about an unjust judge who gives just, justice to a widow who keeps going back to him, going back to him. He's an unjust judge. He has no reason to give her a just response. But she goes back over and over and over. And he's just sick and tired of her nagging him. So he gives her what he wants. And then Jesus goes, how much more will your father in heaven give to his elect who cry out day and night? I tell you, he'll bring forth justice speedily. Speedily. Jesus is making a correlation that as we contend for justice, as we cry out day and night as his people, that we actually have the capacity to hasten his return, to pull it from heaven into our reality right now. Because justice is ultimately brought in its fullness when Jesus returns. Because he's a bridegroom who's coming back to marry his bride, but in order to marry us, he's gotta get rid of everybody. You know how at a wedding in the ceremony, um, you know, there's all the, if it's a traditional ceremony, and a lot of people do their own thing nowadays. But, but there's like, there, I, you help me out. There's like a phrase where somebody said, like the, the minister says, is there anybody like who doesn't, what's the phrase? Ha, objection to, towards this union or whatever, right? Right now in this age, there's a bunch of people, principalities, things in the heavenlies, that if we were to stand at the altar right now with Jesus, speak now or forever hold your peace, there'd be lots of speaking. Justice is ultimately brought when Jesus comes and eradicates all that stuff. And all that's left is a bride who's lovesick, a bride who's made herself ready, that the father can marry his son to his bride and nothing is hindering. You know, a lot of people, um, like I said at the beginning, a lot of people shy away from studying the end times, from reading the book of Revelation, 
from reading any passages of Scripture, even in the prophets in the Old Testament, New Testament passages that point to Jesus' return or to the end times because they're really scared of some of the scary stuff. There's some really intense stuff. Jay, on yesterday morning at uh, his intensive, was speaking through a lot of stuff and just talking about how, like, it's weird. The book of Revelation has some weird stuff in it. But we have to believe that it's there for a reason. And a lot of people are so, like, confused by or scared of it that they just kind of ignore it. And I would, I would warn you against that. That's dangerous territory. Because if we don't know what's to come, then how can we be preparing ourselves? How can we be sober-minded? How can we be diligent to actually make ourselves ready if we don't know what we have to make ourselves ready for? And so we'll toss the baby out with the bathwater. I never really understood that phrase, but I just said it. Um, because, because it's like, well, that stuff's scary. I know Jesus is going to come. It'll all work out in the end. So I'm just going to forget all the stuff, even the good stuff in there, because I don't want to have to deal with the bad stuff or the scary stuff. I love how Peter says, um, right here, he says, there are some things, he's talking about Paul's writings about the end times. This is 2 second, second Peter 3, verse 16. He says, there are some things in them, these writings about the old times that are hard to understand, which, check this out, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. They're ignorant of it, they're not dispassionate, they're easily swayed, they're unstable. And so when they don't understand it, their response is, let me just twist it to make it make sense so I feel safe. And Peter says, it's to their destruction. And then he warns, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that there's gonna be a temptation when you feel ignorant, when you don't understand, to twist it to make it to make sense, knowing that that's a scheme of the enemy to try to trip you up, Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's there. It's in growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in walking in the grace that he's given us that we actually find the most stability, even in the most unstable of times. If I know that there's a slight chance that there's going to be like a tornado or an earthquake or some natural disaster, you better believe I'm doing everything that I can to secure all the stuff that matters. Important documents, important belongings, my own life. Why is it that like our first response when natural disaster hits or when there's a threat, I'll even say a threat of natural disaster, our first response is like, oh no, I got to get ready. Batten down the hatches, let's go. And yet when scripture warns of a lot of instability that's to come, our first response is, uh, that's kind of weird. Grace, grace, the Lord's got me, I'm good. There's a Goshen principle, right? Like back, the Israelites were saved from some of the plagues because they just went to Goshen. I'm, the Lord's just gonna set me in Goshen, I'm good to go. Maybe, but if he warns us, like I said, if he warns us about all this stuff that's going down, isn't it maybe for a reason? Maybe it would be wise for us to consider the fact that maybe some of this is actually for real. Maybe it's not just allegorical. Maybe it's not just imagery. Maybe some of it is actually for real. And when Jesus said like, hey, stuff's gonna go down and God is merciful, so he's actually cutting those days short for the elect so that they're not destroyed. Maybe he actually meant something by that. And I would much rather know, hey, there's a threat of something looming on the horizon. Let me get prepared now 
so that if it comes, I'm good. Then go, ah, it's just a threat. It's just a warning. It might not even happen. I'll take my chances. That's how I would venture to say the large majority of the church chooses to live their lives. There's a lot of warnings in scripture, a lot of exhortations to be sober-minded, to watch, to pray, to be diligent. And I personally would rather take that seriously and do something about it than just go, ah, not really sure. Remember when I said earlier that lovers will outwork workers any day? If we have not cultivated love for Jesus in our hearts, deep love, passionate love that drives us to these things, it's going to feel like a heck of a lot of religious duty and we're probably going to fail. The thing that keeps me coming back to obedience, the thing that keeps me coming back to that yes, the thing that keeps me coming back and going, God, I need grace. I cannot do this right now. Just last night, guys, I was like exhausted. We had a long weekend. I was getting ready for bed. And I was like, I'm just gonna like watch a TV show and like fall asleep watching this TV show. And I just felt something in my heart, in my gut. I didn't even hear a voice. It wasn't like a, no, don't watch that. I just didn't feel peace. And I was like, God, come on, really? (laughs) Don't I deserve this? What's it really gonna do? I just spent my whole weekend worshiping you and serving you. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And he didn't say anything. But I wasn't offended by that because his silence spoke very loudly. (laughs) And I knew in that moment I had a choice to respond and go, if I don't feel peace here right now, it's probably for a reason. And I might not see the fruit now. I might not ever understand it. But I'm going to choose to believe that because Holy Spirit's speaking that I can respond in such a way And so I closed the Netflix app off of my phone. I mean, I was ready to click, y'all. I was ready. It wasn't even a bad TV show. And I just laid in bed, and I was like, God, this sucks. Why is this so hard? Like, you're my treasure. You're my greatest joy. You're everything. And yet I love the idea of, like, tuning out everything and just, like, zoning and falling asleep to this nothingness, rather than choosing to turn my heart towards the very one who gives me life and sustains me. And like, what in the world is going on right now? And it's so hard. And like, this isn't even sin. Like, ugh. (laughs) But the thing that kept me in him was my lovesickness for Jesus. And I don't say that to be like, oh, I love Jesus. Like, it's true though. And I hope that my life says that. I hope that it doesn't take me having a microphone on my face for you guys to believe that. You hear it all the time. How many times have you, you see a friend and they're falling in love and you got that glisten in their eye. They got that spring in their step. Like it's pretty evident. Oh, you got your boo, you know? Like it's, <laughs> do you walk around like that with Jesus? I'm not, I'm not saying Jesus is your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Don't get weird on me. But, but does who we are, actually display that. I'm going to take it a step further. 
us going, Jesus, make me fall more in love with you. Make me fall more in love with you. I just, I don't want to love sin anymore. I want to love you. And then just sitting there is not going to get us to fall more in love with Jesus. It's not. We have to know him. How can you fall in love with somebody that you don't even know? How can you fall in love with somebody if you've never encountered their heart? I don't care how many things he's done for you. I don't care how many things he's going to do for you. If you don't know his heart, he's not fully one yours. You might think he has. But he hasn't. We need to cultivate longing for Jesus' return. We need to cultivate a love inside of our hearts that is actually makes us sick to think about the fact that he is not here. The wedding hasn't come yet. I am not with my beloved. And guys, I'm saying this because I need to hear it. I need to hear it. I don't live this way. I have my good moments and I have a lot of bad ones too. But it's this journey where I get to cultivate it. How do we cultivate it? We watch, we hasten, we choose to be sober-minded. We lay hold of and walk in the grace that he's given us to choose holiness, to choose righteousness, to sew that garment so that we can stand before the Father on that day saying, here we are, your bride. All of our little righteous deeds that you saw in secret, I get to put them on like a garment now. I'm ready. I'm ready, Father. Where is my beloved? Worship team, you guys can come on up. In Matthew 9, um, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and they ask him this question. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Let me give you some context for that. According to Jewish culture, the majority of the fasting that happens is in relation to mourning. Mourning over events that happened that were destructive. Mourning over the loss of lives. And so mourning is shown largely by fasting. It's, I'm going to give myself so fully to this that I'm going to, I'm going to strip myself of anything that gives me comfort. Like, I'm going to rend my heart, and I'm going, to, I'm going to fast. And so the disciples of John the Baptist come, and they're like, we fast, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast. And Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So what he's, he's connecting mourning with fasting. He's saying, you're used to fasting because it's connected to mourning. Can the wedding guests mourn slash fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast. He's saying, there's no need for mourning because I'm here. But there's going to come a day when I'm not going to be here any longer until I come back again. And in that day because my disciples really love me, because they understand that I'm their bridegroom and they're my bride. 
no tradition, no religion, no anything is going to cause them to fast. What's going to motivate them to fast is their mourning over the absence of Jesus. Why would the disciples have mourned over Jesus' absence? He was their best friend. They spent every single day with him for three years. They knew him. They knew him. I want to encourage you, cultivate longing. Don't be afraid of feeling sick with love. There's been a few moments where I felt it physically. And I remember like feeling like I was going to throw up. I'm not even kidding you. I was weeping so hard. I didn't know what had come over me. And I was like, Lord, what is going on? I said, oh, you're lovesick. I'm letting you feel it. And he did that to encourage my heart because I was beating myself up a lot. He's like, no, you really do love me. I'm going to let you feel it. This is how I feel about you. And this is how I see you feeling about me even when you don't. I want to live in that reality every day, though. I want to actually mourn his absence. But the only way that I'm going to mourn his absence is if I know him, if I've cultivated knowing him, knowing his heart, pursuing him so that I can fall more in love with him and building anticipation for what's to come. Revelation is the only book in the Bible. I checked it out. I read through all 60, not read through. I read through the first few chap verses of every book of the Bible this week, just, just for fun. It's the only book that starts with blessed are those who read aloud and hear the words of this book. And then in the very end, it actually says, blessed are those who hear and keep the words of this book. It's important. We have to look at what's to come, look and know, look at and know the heart of Jesus so that we can fall in love with our bridegroom, so that we have the motivation to lay hold of the grace which he's given, to be holy as he's holy, so that we can weave that garment of fine linen and be ready for his return. I'm gonna have Pastor Glenn come up and share any words of knowledge. A lot of times the Holy Spirit will speak to our prophetic team about what he's up to. But as we do that, I wanna open up the altar today Maybe you're, um, maybe you're saying, I, I need to cultivate lovesickness. I love Jesus, but I don't, I don't always feel it. And I know that I can love him more. I would say, think of the thing or the person that you love most in this world right now. And think of how you navigate your heart around them. Think of how you prioritize your time around them and go, Jesus, do I treat you that way? And if you don't, you're in dangerous waters. Maybe you're like, I'm one of those people that just ran away. I don't like the end times. It terrifies me. I don't understand it. And you're like, I want to give myself to actually like studying who Jesus is, studying his return, knowing what's coming, knowing his heart so that I can be prepared. If you want to commit to that, I want you to come up for prayer. And the third thing, if you're going, I, I haven't really chosen, I haven't really laid hold fully of the grace that's been given me to choose holiness and righteousness. 
choose living in godliness. And I want to be sober-minded. I want to take this thing seriously. I want to stop blaming God for all of my problems, but I want to start actually going, you've given me everything that I need. First Peter, it says, or Second Peter 1, it says, he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. He's given it. It's not his fault if we don't do it. So if you're saying, I have not done my part, and I want to stop blaming you for that, and I want to do my part, I want to invite you guys to come up in just a minute.